0: Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I am your host Ali Milani and we have a wealth of news and politics and drama and scandals and bombshells to go through with you this week. Uh, Joining us will have Councillor Hamza Tuazil, former Lord Mayor of Westminster, Harrison Griffiths from the Institute of Economics Affairs and Professor Melanie Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow. It's been a big week. Uh, We've got stories from Matt Hancock. God, I'm tired of hearing his name. Trevor Phillips. Ditto on Piers Morgan's programme. And the theme of this show that we're going to be talking about uh, throughout is going to be the strikes. Uh, Strikes in the NHS uh, from teachers, uh, rail workers and beyond. And we're going to have a little bit bit of a look and a discussion about the context in which they came, what kind of political impact that they could have, uh, and be speaking to some experts about whether they're going to work, whether they're necessary, uh, and what the future of Britain looks like as workers strike around the world. But as we do every week, we're going to begin the show with The Week Unwrapped. This is where we talk about the top three issues in our politics uh, around the country. And joining us in the studio this week uh, is Councillor Hamza, former Lord Mayor of Westminster. Hamza, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: listen, before we get into this this week's Unwrapped uh, and, and the stories, tell me a little bit about your time as Lord Mayor. I think the famous <laughs> picture was your, I think you were behind... Um, in the coronation you were very very prominent um, uh in, in all the pictures
2: there was, there was oh, the three big national events so yeah the jubilee uh funeral and coronation yeah oh, of and course the funeral so as well So the jubilee was the one that kicked it all off essentially yeah. because i was with with the royal family so yeah behind prince william behind charles obviously when he was still prince yeah um and then obviously we had the funeral where i went to my mother obviously my mother was a headscarf mm-hmm. so that sort of made the headlines a little bit and then obviously just what you can't believe it was last month, we had a coronation. Yeah, so, so
1: I think one of the things we want to hear from, how old are you? 23. So 23 <laughs> years old, um, clearly a Muslim man yeah. uh, from an ethnic minority background. Yeah. Uh, you know, I certainly saw on my Twitter kind of blow up the fact that your face was very, very much prominent in some of these big institutional statewide events. What was that like? What was that experience like?
2: It was a lot to take in, to be honest with you. At the start, you're quite nervous because you have to... They they sort of teach you all the protocol. They always teach you what you need to do and how to react when you're sort of meeting the royals or meeting mm-hmm. people of lots of authority. But until you're actually there until so you're actually doing and taking part in the event, yeah. you can't really take it all in. Did you did
1: it, you have a feeling of the impact? You just just no, your pictures it, it, would have
2: no, not really, because it's sort of again we've we in Westminster we've never had a Muslim Lord Mayor. We never yeah. had someone from a minority ethnicity. We never even had a young person be yeah. Lord Mayor. So for me, at the start, I never really processed it all, and it was only throughout the year. Which yeah. I sort of picked things up and thought, wait a minute, that's the first, yeah, that's and
1: it's, it has a huge impact. Look, my, my WhatsApp groups, <laughs> and not just the <laughs> political ones, right, were just blowing me up, going, "Who's this brother in the back?" Like well, literally, it, um, everywhere I went, people, people were people really excited missa- yeah, to people see would you. Would
2: message yeah. and say, "Hamza, we're so proud
1: of you. It's amazing. It's yeah.
2: fantastic because that representation is what the they, yeah. you know, people really want."
1: And I think it's one of those things. I found it in the Euros as well with the football. I don't know if you're a football fan, but yeah, definitely. This 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 England team felt kind of different to us because all of my friends and others, because there was such a diverse in the team you felt closer connected and i think similarly interestingly when people saw you in these pictures saw you at these events um it certainly helped in bringing them closer because it was someone that looked like them someone who probably sounded like them someone who'd been through life similar to them so they were able to connect with you and therefore connect with well, the event you found that is that something people norm- brought up that's
2: what i normally say to people i hope people can look at it and say if hamza did it then i could as yeah. well because that's that's the yeah. sort of inspiration that we need
1: Talk me through. I'm interested. What are some of these protocols? Because I can only imagine there's some nuts ones. No, they're just really um, like really basic. Is it like so you're not allowed to touch them or something? So for,
2: yeah. So for example, if a family, so a member of the royal family comes to you, you only reach out your hand if they reach out their hand first. Oh, so Shut up. Very simple. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you don't go for the handshake unless they go for the handshake. Yeah. Um. Obviously, absolutely no hugging or like wrapping your arms around or any of that sort of. No thing. bear hugging. No. Child. And then you sort of wait there. They'll come to you and speak to you um and someone i think it's an equerry who walks around with them who tell them sort of this person's lord mayor this person is yeah. that this person oh man. yeah like so they know who they're talking to yeah but then it's really sort of sometimes it's a long conversation sometimes it's really brief just yeah. you know how you doing sort of thing. yeah and what but were they like it's quite nice did you actually. meet any of
1: them have any time with any of them yeah i've met pretty much all of them yeah <laughs> literally literally every single <laughs>
2: one um so i've met the king on several occasions um I was really glad to have um, Princess Beatrice attend one of my charity events as well, nice. which was really nice. Yeah, yeah. But it was that connection that I was able to hopefully bridge the gap with yeah. a little bit and get them out, in, especially in Westminster. Everyone thinks, obviously, they're always in Westminster, but they're not, so it's, yeah. it's important to sort of get them to these sorts of events.
1: Yeah, and like, like I said, I think a lot of people, particularly from backgrounds like myself and yours, will have seen you in these events and think, oh, maybe I can become a mayor, maybe I can stand as a local councillor, maybe I can make a difference in my local community. Because um, it's not just all about MPs. I think people just think it's the House of Parliament, but there's <laughs> so much importance in local government work. Yeah. Probably, You probably have more of an impact if, if in local uh, government.
2: If, if you're a councillor and you're, I don't know, cabinet member for housing, yeah. you've got ten times more, more power and yeah. authority than a backbench MP. Yeah, a backbench just, MP just, fax, just yeah. sends letters and grandstands <laughs> to be us.
1: So just... Twenty, thirty seconds. Throw out a sort of. If anyone's out there thinking from our backgrounds or your backgrounds, that's thinking, uh, kind of, you know, I have things I believe in and things I want to change, but I'm not sure if it's for me. Tell them why they should. So the reason why you should get involved in politics is because
2: everything that you think impacts your life or does impact your life of yourself your family your friends anything in your community is political someone somewhere has made a political decision whether that's what time i say to young people for example whether that's what time your local football pitch closes yeah someone probably has made a decision somewhere and that's probably based on a political background whether it's local residents complaining or whether it's that sort of <laughs> thing so if you've got something that you're really passionate about and you want to make a change politics
1: is the way forward you might not be interested in politics i think politics is for you but politics is interested in you and definitely impacts you right we're going to go into the week unwrapped so this is we pick three stories uh headline stories out of the out of the week uh and we kind of discuss them uh, and give uh, our views uh on what they mean for the future of the country and our local communities story number one the first one again like i said it's matt hancock so former health secretary matt hancock uh who you may remember in those raunchy sort of cctv camera (laughs) Uh, Big Brother knockoff <laughs> pictures told the covid inquiry he is profoundly sorry for being unprepared for the pandemic he said that his biggest error was assuming that a pandemic could not prevent could not be prevented from spreading and instead prepared for the consequences of the deaths there has been a total of 227,000 deaths in the uk with covid on the death certificate matt hancock says he's profoundly sorry in 2023 after 227,000 people killed uh, this is just going to go over everyone's head, isn't it, Matt? Uh, I'm sorry, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I don't think anyone has any time for Matt anymore. No,
2: I'm I'm quite cynical of um, Mr. Hancock. I, I I don't think he is really sorry. I mm. don't think he really cares. I think he's now pretty much up for sale to the highest bidder, and that's all he's. That's all he's. Yeah, about. I think at there the was moment.
1: a lot of rumors even at the tail end of his term that mm. that he was really interested in becoming a, a a sort of personality, and he ended up going mm. on uh, what was it? I'm, I'm a celebrity. Get, Get me, me out of here. here. I wish I'm a celebrity would have kept him there. To be honest, no? well, I think they offered him like crazy amounts of money as well, which yeah.
2: is, and he accepted it while being an MP.
1: Yeah, and that's the, again that's, <laughs> that happens quite frequently. These MPs were second jobs. Mm. If you know, I think he got more than his MP salary to be on, on I'm a Celebrity. So Absolutely. where do you think his priority is going? Which <laughs> wherever chasing, the money's going, in the bag. Oh. So the second story is on Trevor Phillips. Uh, Trevor Phillips went on Piers Morgan's show and discussed uh, Meghan Markle um, and the recent sort of controversy and headlines surrounding Meghan Markle. We're going to listen in to what he had to say and then react.
2: But the point I really want to make about Meghan Markle is that she had to learn to be black on the job, as it were. And I think she made a bit of a mess of it. She didn't take advice.
1: And that's, in some sense, is why I think they've squandered the opportunity to demonstrate something important about this country So there you hear Trevor Phillips on Piers Morgan. He's picked up a lot of flack for this Hamza, largely for two reasons. One is essentially implying that Meghan didn't really have an experience of being a black woman before she came to the UK. And he spoke about, you know, the school she went to um, Mm -hmm. in America and the fact that they kind of squandered the opportunity. Uh, Now, I think the important context is this is not the first time Trevor Phillips has uh, been dragged into the national spotlight on the issue of racism. He was suspended from the Labour Party on allegations of Islamophobia. Um, So, you know, this is a man in which his (laughs) anti-racist credentials are severely tainted. What do you make of this? I think he's essentially saying that Meghan Markle didn't know what it was like to be black, had to learn on the job, and that she's squandered the opportunity.
2: I think personally it's a bit out of order <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think that's really fair and that's not really nice there's a lot of again I've, I've seen it so there's a lot of random hate towards Meghan Markle like no matter what it is there's something that they they don't seem to like and it, it, I think it hurts especially when someone from another minority background is essentially saying she had to learn to be black That's sort of when she, it's when it's she has very, clear, when she's
1: very clearly stated some of her early life experiences as it pertains to racism, anyone who's experienced racism... Now, look, I don't think Trevor's stupid. I think mm. he's a clown, but I don't think he's stupid. <laughs> I think he knows what he's saying. I think he's pandering to certain people within the media. There's no coincidence he was on Piers Morgan's it's, show, yeah. who is just obsessed with Meghan Markle it's in, it's in it's a really, really unhealthy illness. way. I think yeah. someone needs to do a welfare check at Talk <laughs> TV on, on Piers Morgan and his obsession. There's been these allegations towards Trevor following this conversation, Mm. uh, following what he said, Mm. essentially saying he knows what he's saying, but what he's doing is pandering to the sort of establishment of British politics and the media, and that's how he kind of gets to where he is today is by saying things like this. Do you think there is an expectation on people like us from minority backgrounds, he's obviously a black man who's experienced racism in the Mm. UK, to just make sure we say the right thing so we're we're invited back?
2: It's it's that sense of... um appeasing the audience it's sort of if I say yeah if I say the right thing then I'm going to be I'm sort of going to be yeah as in they can't criticize me for for saying it because I'm a minority Yeah. but then I get the other side because they agree with me who might be probably really serious racists yeah Um. in terms of Meghan Markle it's not again I don't think any racist went up to her and said are you, are you officially black like are yeah. you, have you have you grown up in a black culture because that, that's essentially yeah. what he's saying by saying you've been taught
1: and let's not forget that when Meghan Markle were first the sort of st- stories say the headlines that she was she and Prince Harry um, I think when when she was getting married or whether when they first announced she was dating the headlines of the British papers were yeah. straight out of Compton yeah that was the sort of headlines yeah, that they were going a, with yeah, so oh, the oh. racism oh. started yeah. from moment go so um, in the world, yeah and I think the feeling is that people like Trevor need to say these sort of things to advance their own political or media careers. And is I, that something I, I, that you found? I mean, obviously you had a very notable role at a very important time. Did you feel like there were things you had to hold back or things that you had to say to survive in the system?
2: I I, I think, in me personally, I had to... Uh, the way I would describe it is you can't you couldn't always be frank with the people you're talking to yeah. in the sense that not necessarily because they're bad people or they'll disagree with you, just because they literally won't understand. Yeah, like, I, It's I, that comprehension. They, they I literally can not comprehend.
1: No, and, that's, and that's what we, I've said this countless times in this yeah. show, is a lot of times it's not that people are unwilling. Some of them are unwilling. Mm-hmm. They're just unable. They haven't lived a day in the life of people mm-hmm. like us or other people around the country, and they have no understanding. It
2: doesn't make sense. Oh, and yeah. The reason
1: I asked you that question was, when I was a candidate in Uxbridge, I... I, mm. I um. I did hold my tongue on a lot of things, mm. to be honest. Uh, one of them was policing, for example. Mm. Um, knife crime is a major issue in the city, as you'll know. And I yeah, know I'm we've, saying. you know, I've been to far too many funerals for someone my age yeah. uh, of people who've been stabbed. And my belief was always that the answer to this wasn't policing in and of itself alone, right? Mm. There needed to be wider work that was done. And there was a huge issue with the trust when I was growing up between us and the police, yeah. um, particularly around stop and search. But I had to kind of bite my tongue as a candidate because, A, it wasn't authorized by Party HQ, but also, you know, I knew the the way it was going to be taken. I never said things that I disagreed with, and, I, and I'm sure you didn't either. I never no. said things I didn't believe in. No. But on certain things, I held back because I thought that it, people weren't ready to hear it. it has We don't need to say on what, uh, but is that part of your experience as well?
2: I think sometimes it, it can be.
1: I'll give you a really quick example. So
2: maybe one day I'll be in Buckingham Palace, having a really nice, or I'll be in Mayfair, for example, having a really nice garden party or something like that. And these these people, they all go to the same events year in, year out. They've known each other, for years. You're the new face. I'm the new face. But they know I'm gonna change after a year as well. So then I'd be going back to my council flat with my grand and my family, and they'll be going back to the luxury. Yeah. And that comprehension, it took me a lot of time to actually understand what yeah. that meant and what it looked like. And sometimes I would go home and you have that sort of yeah. imposter syndrome, you think. Oh, is yeah. It's really the... Am I meant to be here? And you yeah. start of question yourself a lot. So it's, yeah. not, it's not easy. Tell,
1: tell, tell us about that. I don't think people understand that enough. I've, I I I've, I've felt that so many mm. uh, so so many periods in my life. You know, you'll be at these grand events, mm. um, and we're all kind of chilled because we're on the radio now. <laughs> but you'd be dressed up, and you, for you, you'd have the chains around yeah, your neck. Yeah, of office. But you'd you'd be thinking, wow, like what am I doing here? I and you look around you, and no one l- kind of looks like you, and you know, no one's had the sort of life experience that you've had. That imposter syndrome can be well, overwhelming.
2: It, it, it hits you sometimes. I think um, age is a is a little bit of a factor as well because yeah. a lot of these people are in their sixties and seventies and, and plus, and yeah. sometimes literally in eighties, sixties and nineties. Being kind, yes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's quite yeah, that's quite <laughs> young. Um, but then they again they again they're not bad people. They yeah. try to be nice. They try to be accommodating and, and that uh, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, but it goes back it's just to... that that sense of I know I'm going to my council estate, yeah. where there's lots of issues, lots of crime, lots of that sort yeah. of thing. And they're going to go to their luxurious lifestyles. I might see them the next week, but we live complete two completely different lives. And
1: this is what I think that's why it's important that we say we're not having a pop at anyone. What we're saying is, without that experience, your 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 life experience informs your politics Mm. and it informs your priorities. Mm. So when we talk, when me and you talk about knife crime, it's because when we go home, we see it on the street, we see it as part of our communities. When some other people in politics go home, they go to gated communities, they go into these really rich areas, and they don't see it in their communities, and it informs their political priorities and it informs ours which is why i think it's so important that we saw your face and we saw people like you Mm. in some of these big positions because again not having a pop they just don't have the experiences we do unless we inject real life real people people who understand what life is like into these offices of power there's not going to be any change okay story number three moving on from uh trevor phillips hopefully forever Mm. is (laughs) Senior doctors have voted in favour of strike action for more pay. 86% of the British Medical Association members backed walkouts after repeated pay cuts. There'll be a 48-hour walkout on the 20th and 21st of July following a five-day strike by junior doctors. Nurses in England failed to vote in sufficient numbers for a fresh strike. Um, Of the 122,000 ballots received by the Royal College of Nursing, 84% voted in favour of striking. This fell short of the 140,000 turnout threshold Needed. So cons- this is specifically on consultants. So consultants have voted to strike. This is following strikes by junior doctors, following strikes by nurses uh, and the railway work- workers. And that's what the theme of the show, I think, in general is going to be about is is the sort of state of uh, the working economy and all these strikes happening ar- around the country give me your view on not just the consultants but yeah. all the strikes that we've experienced and and what you're hearing on the ground as to how it's affecting people
2: well people are essentially fed up and this is not just normal people from both sides people sometimes assume that those striking want to strike in the sense that yeah they can't wait to get out of work and that's hmm. not the case yeah they strike because it's a necessity because they have to yeah um
1: we, particularly we, nurses well, teachers well, these doctors are, these
2: are, these are we, we used to talk about them during the pandemic and say key workers yay key workers yay yeah and then when key workers want us to help them it's like yeah oh no
1: how that, dare you, you know, like, mate, that's, that's spot it's on there, there's this amnesia in our politics remember we all got out and clapped for them and thought these are heroes. people giving up their lives <laughs> yeah. to protect us in the worst
2: possible, scenario,
1: yeah. po- worst possible scenario and now they're striking we've got people saying you know that they have no right to be striking. I just want to play a quick uh, clip. This is Peter Hitchens on LBC, um, and he spoke about uh, the most recent uh, decision by senior doctors to strike. Let's listen in.
3: Beyond doubt, doctors should never strike and nor should nurses. There isn't any conceivable argument that allows people who's...
0: you think they should be banned from
3: striking? No, I think they should... Uh, they, if, if they will insist on striking, then they should be banned, uh, banned from striking, but people should be free to take the solution. I can't understand how anybody can take up the profession of mercy and then when they uh, feel like it, uh, decide they're not going well, to... Well,
2: they're saying mercy. they haven't got... The, 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 the junior doctors are saying that they're
1: actually asking for 35% of
2: restorative pay. I
3: don't care. I don't pay. care. If, you, if, if what what you're doing, as I say, is giving mercy to people, you cannot stop giving it.
1: So that's uh, <laughs> that's Peter Hitchens, and um, in what is really an asinine jackass dumb statement, essentially saying that people who are in the profession of mercy, i.e. doctors and nurses, uh, should should not stop giving that nurse mercy and be striking. Now, what Peter Hitchens conveniently ignores is the fact that nurses and doctors have repeatedly been on the receiving end of real-time pay cuts, have repeatedly been working hours and hours that are beyond comprehension for someone like Peter Hitchens, people who, at the front line of the pandemic, had their faces destroyed by the amount of masks that they had to wear and the hours that they worked, They've seen their working conditions slashed. They've seen their hospitals and the funding the hospitals receive in real-time slashed. They've seen real-time pay cuts year Mm -hmm. after year all stayed in the profession because of the love that they have for it, and an idiot, jackass, dumb individual like Peter Hitchens goes on national radio and says that someone who is in the job of mercy should never stop giving out. How stupid is that? I've
2: never heard that phrase ever used <laughs> 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 in my life, job of mercy. But um, Peter Hitchens is probably a, a multimillionaire, so yeah. he probably couldn't care less. Um, way. <laughs>
1: Imagine if Peter Hitchens had to work a day, one shift, during the COVID pandemic. No, you wouldn't be able to. And he on on the wages...
2: Uh, Peter Hitchens is probably on a private healthcare, really nice little contract he's got set up with his whoever employs him. Um, but th- there's, there's a really sort of important fundamental idea is that everyone has the right to strike. And it's not saying whether you're a nurse or doctor or I don't know, whatever you do... It, it, you can't exclude certain groups from yeah. striking. This is a really sort of dangerous, dangerous
1: path to go. And if you say to certain groups, "Oh, you can't do that," you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and I think this is look. I think the context of this is nurses are looking, and and, and, and th- there's always this in economic. T- tough times and mm-hmm. in crisis, there's always, we're all in this together. We're all gonna, and to quote Rishi Sunak, <laughs> we need to hold our nerve and kind of continue the course. The problem, as I see it, is you have nurses and teachers and railway workers and bus drivers and everyone. All of us are seeing real term pay cuts. We're seeing our living conditions drop. We're seeing the amount of investment in public services slashed. Yeah all while there are tax breaks given to some of the richest in our society, and corporate profits skyrocket. So I think one of the the main examples was the energy crisis, so all of our bills, my bills went up, your bills went up, and just at the same time, we saw record profits of energy companies shoot into the sky. And so when we talk about strikes, I think, interestingly, what you said is people don't want to strike. This is a measure of last resort.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And... I think for as long as we have this current government for it's not going to I'm not going to say there's going to be a general strike or so but you, you maybe maybe that's what it takes yeah. you, you know what I'm saying maybe that's what it takes for the government to actually wake up and say we're not doing the job properly but this isn't the first time this isn't the last time we've had what 13 years now I've lived more of my life in a conservative yeah. government than I have in a in a labor government and that that hurts hurts yeah. me to say but that's that's the truth and I
1: think um, the question will be you know are we headed into a sort of 9070 styles you know mass industrial actions i think we may already be there uh we're going to be joined next by harrison griffiths uh from a communications officer at the institute of economic affairs we're going to continue this talks about the strikes and the state of the economy uh thank you so much hamza for joining us in the studio uh we're going to be joined by harrison right after this
0: Fubar radio presents access all
2: areas
1: we have got the lovely money from The Apprentice.
2: Lord Sugar's pretty big on Twitter, isn't he? And yeah. I know he has... He, I mean, he's a big blocker.
3: You get blocked quite easily by, by Lord Sugar. Um, do you find you're able to have quite a frank and deep, good conversation with him?
0: No, cri- I think criticism is a very different thing, though, to having those honest conversations. And I mm-hmm. think he does respect transparency and honesty and upfrontness. Um, but as my mum always says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Every
2: Wednesday from 6pm,
0: FUBAR
1: Radio.
3: FUBAR Radio presents... As handsome as you imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right, at the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early. It's yeah. like seven o'clock. I would have had at
1: least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... Welcome back. This is Ali Malani on Politics Uncensored. Uh, we've just had uh, Councillor Hamza Toazel, former Lord Mayor of Westminster, in the studio. And we've been talking about the strikes uh, around the country. Uh, following nurse's strikes and junior doctor's strikes, senior doctors have today voted in favour of strike action for more pay. So 86% of British Medical Association members backed walkouts uh, after repeated pay cuts. Introducing next, we have Harrison Griffiths, Communication Officer at the Institute of Economic affairs uh, last week the house of commons rejected the amendments from the house of lords of the uk on the government's controversial strikes bill for the second time the bill allows ministers to impose minimum levels of service during the industrial action by workers in health education fire and rescue transport border security and nuclear decommissioning harrison thank you so much uh, for joining us i wondered if you could give us your initial reaction to senior doctors voting in favor of strike action and you know what this means for the country following um wide-scale industrial actions from the the healthcare sector, railway sector, and possibly the teachers as well.
3: Yeah, and uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, It's a very dire state of affairs. It adds to what already seems like a a pretty stagnant, dire uh, present and possibly future for the UK uh, economy. Uh, In general, uh, the economic impacts of strikes so far have definitely been noticeable. Uh, in February this year, the UK's growth was at about zero, partly because strikes knocked off a fraction of a percent, only about 0.2, 0.3 off of growth. Um, last year in October 2022, for example, when uh, strike the last round of strikes was really at their peak, about 400,000 working hours were lost. I mean, when our productivity is still lower than it was before the pandemic, this definitely won't help. So one of the things
1: that are being raised around these strikes is, and I I know you talked about the impact that the strikes had, but the reality is for the workers, they've seen 15 years of wage stagnation, over £11,000 in lost wages uh, gap, according to the Resolution Foundation. The TUC in 2022 showed that workers suffered from the longest and harshest pay squeeze in modern history. Uh, When it comes to things like nurses and junior doctors specifically, there was a real resistance from government to engage um, with these sectors as it pertains to the pay gap that they've received over these years, what other options do these workers have but to strike?
3: Yeah, and, and I, have, I have a lot of sympathy with that view. Uh, the, the the issue when it comes to uh, public sex workers and to quasi-public sex workers like so in Transport, whether the government effectively has a, a monopoly over the entire sector, um, is that they are one group of many that are massively struggling under the weight of the cost of living costs at the moment and inflation. Uh, almost everybody across the country is suffering real terms pay cuts and the uniquely difficult issue when it comes to public sector workers or anybody who's negotiating with one employer, basically the government, um, is that it's very difficult to determine exactly what their value, exactly what an hour's worth of their labour is worth because there's no Uh, free labour market, there's no competition to determine exactly what that price is. And so you effectively have a zero-sum tussle which benefits nobody between the workers who understandably are doing what they can to improve the lot for them and their families and the government who fairly understandably uh, are in a situation where you know we're already they're already spending about forty percent of the UK's GDP every year. The tax burden is at its highest level since the Second World War, and now printing more money and issuing more debt is just a non-option because of the increase in interest rates. So everybody's got to tighten their belt. And the, the government cannot really, um, in its defence, be seriously considering demands like thirty-five percent pay increases, the likes of which the junior doctors demanded uh, earlier Why? this year.
1: Why? Why are they not able to? to to meet those demands, considering the fact that workers are £75 a month worse off than 2008?
3: Well, yeah, because the the economy has tangibly shrunk. Um, It's just a a simple reality. Um, Well, not, not tangibly shrunk so much, but growth has tangibly shrunk. And the government's now in a situation where it's effectively at the peak of its spending capacity. As I say, forty percent of GDP is currently spent by the government in the UK. The tax burden is extremely high. And unfortunately, so I think- over the last over the last 15 years, it's been possible for the government to just print more money and issue more debt but because interest rates are going up that's impossible so harrison yeah, I, I just want to, to ask you on this me, it's, it's on, commitments. On,
1: on this fiscal responsibility you know the government only has so much money that it can spend and needs to tighten its belt what, what people listening will be i imagine asking is how come they can find 140 million pounds just to name one example on a rwanda policy that they've already spent out of the taxpayer coffers and not one person has been has been Deported. But when it comes to nurses and when it comes to public sector workers, there's always a conversation around affordability. But when it comes to tax breaks for the very richest in our society, which went from 45% to 40% under what was the, the, the disastrous quasi kwatang budget... There's never been that conversation when it comes to rwanda policy and other policies and the the tax cuts for the very richest that we've seen over the years there's never been a question around affordability but when public sector workers and i I know that you spoke about you know there's no competition what they'd be asking for at the very least is not real terms pay cuts to keep up their pay with inflation there's always a conversation around affordability it's not fair is it it's it's always public sector workers that have to pay for the economy while the very richest get off um scot free
3: yeah, and when it comes to policies like Rwanda, you find absolutely no disagreement from me. I think it's the fact that it's a colossal waste of money is one of the least objectionable things about it. It's thoroughly inhumane, and I believe it's a policy that we're going to. But be how come? But, but how come we? How come years, the government has money for, money for that and exactly not for public sector those. workers? Sorry, sorry, I have missed that.
1: So how come the how come the government has money for things like that and the tax cuts, but not for public sector workers?
3: Yeah, I, I would argue that it definitely doesn't have that unless it's willing to undertake spending cuts for example or until inflation comes under control and growth returns to a level where the government can sustain its year-on-year increases in spending uh, without having to raise taxes or cut spending that's simply not the reality at the moment and you, you talk about tax rises well th- there was very much a conversation about the affordability of tax rises when Truss and Quartang announced uh, that they would be abolishing the 45p rate that was part of the reason they u-turned on it within five days so, and that's also part of the but these tax, why the markets responded the way they did. But these tax cuts like have been massive... going on
1: for 13 years now. It's not just the last year or since COVID. We've had tax cuts for the very richest in our society for over 13 years.
3: Well, I mean, which tax cuts are you talking about in particular? Because, I mean, some of those will raise more revenue than higher rates. So, for example, the corporation tax cut that David Cameron brought in actually raised more revenue within three years than the previous higher rate had because it broadened the tax base. So that's one that was actually a net positive from a revenue standpoint.
1: But so so your suggestion is because of the tax cuts, it grew and it brought more, brought more money in. But the, the, I mean, they were reacting to an economy that had already faltered. So the, I think suggestion would be that that would have gone in that direction anyway, regardless of whether they had ta- tax cuts or not. And they may have received more in the end had they not gone for the tax cuts.
3: Um, that that's a, a valid counterfactual, but you'd also have to analyze the actual impact of lower rates of tax on um wealth creating companies and particularly those who decided to base themselves for tax purposes in the UK that wouldn't otherwise have done. That's why the revenue increased. Um, so I mean uh, that that is a very yeah I mean I guess look argument to make without in, in general if in general there isn't an, an optimal rate of tax below which you will broaden the base. Yeah. Look, without going into the
1: without going into the minutiae, which I'd love to do, but I think what we want to stay to is 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 basically public sector workers and pretty much working class communities feeling hard done by that when it comes to real term pay cuts um, for within the public sector, whether that's nurses or teachers or doctors, um, when when they come and they talk about the amount that they need to stay in the sector, there's always an affordability argument, but on other policy that isn't really reflected. Is that not the case? So when people say, you know, we've just got to tighten our belts and we've got to all be in this together, why is that the case for public sector workers? But when rising corporate profits in energy sector, for example, you know, that's, that's not really seen as the issue. It's, it's, it's the disruption by strikes or the, the 35%, which looks like a ludicrous number in terms of pay rises that's looked at.
3: You know, t- two things I would say. Number one, I would definitely dispute the idea that there hasn't been a massive conversation and a huge space of government taxes and regulations in order to address uh, large profits in the energy sector. The government's levied at least three, by my recollection, wind. It's not taxes just the energy sector. The sector to, to address this very point. However, I would be one of those people that would make the arguments that that's not necessarily a bad thing, because profit making companies, in order to make profit, have to produce value for everybody. They have to produce energy at a price people are willing to pay and the profits, the, the actual profit figures themselves perform a vital function of communicating to the rest of the market that there is money to be made but, by expanding the supply of energy. But this but week, the IMF, Harrison, if I may, have actually, have actually uh, done harm to our attempts to increase the energy supply. But the IMF but today, listen, no, 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 Harrison,
1: if, if this week alone, the IMF, which isn't a left-wing organization by any stretch of the imagination, has said that the rise in corporate profits account for almost half the increase in Europe's inflation. So it's actually, this, this rising infl- rise in corporate profits is having a negative impact on our economy.
3: Yeah, so the, the, the IMF, I would say, are not necessarily correct. And while I would agree with your characterization, they're hardly a left-wing institution. They're not really a free market institution either. They, they certainly embrace the, the consensus sort of neo Keynesian economics anyway. Uh, but they're not correct about that. They've got the causality the wrong way around, I would argue. that uh, profits, because uh, companies, particularly large companies, have access to uh, more information earlier than most of the rest of the economy do, uh, adjust their profit margins in order to account for the lost costs that they will likely have in the future and to anticipate more inflation. Uh, In in addition, um, uh, I would also say that uh, 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 consumers are not merely price takers, they are part of price setting as well. So uh, the fact that consumers were basically washed with cash during COVID because well, they weren't spending a lot of it and the government were also pumping a load of money into the economy, uh, meant that consumers were willing to take slightly higher prices that account for these profit margins that they're now not willing to take because that cash has kind of gone away. So the causality on that is the wrong way around. Uh, but listen, the higher profits, and they, they always are, including in historic periods of inflation, are a product of inflation. They're not the cause.
1: But look, the, the, the argument is, I, I disagree with you on that, but the argument is that one of the things that COVID taught us is that state the state and the government has the power if it has the the willingness has the power to do extraordinary things in extraordinary difficult times i think this cost of living crisis undoubtedly falls under that extraordinary circumstances and extraordinary times given that the the wage gap and the wage stagnation in the nhs has a cyclical impact on being able to deal with the waiting list crisis and therefore um impacts the employment market and impacts the economy why can't we say the government will look at increasing taxes on these corporate profits across different sectors including energy which i know they've spoken about to meet the 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 demands of nurses and doctors in order to kind of get the this the the economic situation under control and get the strikes under control and deal with this moving forward
3: yeah, i so yeah, I just like to say before I answer that that I really do love these conversations when you have two people who are really opposed to each other on the, on the basic stuff of it. There's not a lot of sort of nuance. No, I think to be it's necessary. Yeah. Conversations where we we very much do disagree on this uh, on this fact. So when it when it comes to COVID, I think uh, the lesson that you took from it is precisely the wrong one. It shows that when the government just uh, basically says that it has the ability to solve every problem by throwing a load of money at it. Well, Covid and the unprecedented level of money that was thrown at the problem uh, is a massive cause of what we are dealing with now. When you flood the economy full of money, about uh, about half of which was printed new by the Bank of England, uh, you are going to have inflation down the line. What Covid has taught us is that on that one occasion, the government just about managed to meet massive commitments, but it cannot do that all the time. And so when it comes to spending, as I say, we're already at historic levels of spending, we're already at historic levels of national debt, we're already at historic levels of taxation. The government can't just be throwing money at the problem anymore, particularly when long-term guilt yields are at about 5 6% now. It's so, just not possible. So how However, do we deal with... I would just like with... To say that my, my heart really does go out to basically everybody in the public sector who is suffering right now. They are suffering the consequences of bad decisions taken by politicians Really yeah as I, previous and it shouldn't be that way in other healthcare systems in other countries where the state is less in control of setting wages nurses and doctors are paid higher that's why we're seeing a lot of people in the uk for example go to australia to make their living rather than staying here and it's a crying shame
1: i think one of the one of the quotes i heard a doctor say today was that doctors and nurses are the lions being led by donkeys and government um and i think we'd we'd all uh at this point probably agree with that
3: my question oh, is man, Ali, we do not
1: disagree <laughs> my question is okay so uh we disagree on 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 what government can do um mm-hmm. and what they should do but from your perspective we have record wage st- stagnation uh in the NHS particularly for nurses uh, we have huge lost wage gaps uh, like I said 75 pounds a month worse off than 2008 in real terms uh, and we've seen the largest and harshest pay squeeze in modern history how should the gu- how sh- if if it's not going to be meeting the pay demands what we're likely to see is nurses leaving the sector doctors leaving the sector and the NHS crumbling under the pressure how can we deal with this if it's not to tax corporate profits and pay the nurses and doctors what they deserve? How do we deal with it?
3: Well, we're at the point now where the state does so much in our economy. Uh, and I think it's important to address um, you know, on, on issues like the the Cameronite period uh, that's still called austerity, uh, is that you didn't actually see as a percentage of GDP government spending uh, decline in real terms. You saw government spending stagnate compared to where it was previously. And NHS spending, for example, was completely ring-fenced during the austerity period. It wasn't cut at all. And crucially, the massive criticism I would have is not that spending cuts weren't and aren't now necessary. I believe that they very much are, but that the government just cut spending without actually withdrawing itself from certain sectors of the economy. So take social care, for example, the government didn't drop any of its commitment to social care to provide social care it didn't let the market crowd in and provide uh, instead of the state it just cut the funding and so now we have the state with its finger in an awful lot of pies in our economy dominating more and more parts of our lives controlling decisions across the economy but it doesn't have the money to do it and at some point it becomes unsustainable taxing corporate profits is a a a a nice idea i suppose in theory but the problem is you eventually run out of profits to tax companies leave they will go to places with more favorable business environments we've already seen with the energy windfall tax that the government's now had to cut quite significantly it's projected revenues from the windfall tax by 2020 no i really struggle do less?
1: this is the constant argument that you know if we tax profits and these companies will leave well the, the reality is you know first of all that's not necessarily true we, we we have some of the lowest tax rates um across europe and so as long as we we maintain that um they're unlikely to leave brexit was a major issue i give you that like brexit did cause an issue in terms of uh, companies wanting wanting to stay but what you're suggesting is then that the people of britain are held hostage by these large companies to say well if you if you tax us anymore we're going to leave and that the The impact is that working class people, working people, are going to pay for the economy and the richest are going to get richer. And this is where the divide comes between the richest and the poorest.
3: The reality, I think, um, as I see it anyway, is that you need both. And um, what a market economy does is aligns the incentives of everybody from the bottom to the top to work together to create value. The problem and the people who we are really living at the expense of is the state, the bloated state that claims that takes, sorry, they don't ask, they take more money out of the economy than they have since the Second World War. But the be in more the, areas of our lives than before. But the alternative still, is to. They still have the goal to tell us. But
1: the alternative but is, but is to hand it to money. private. But the alternative is to hand it to private to the market and to the private private providers that have done so wonderfully in the water uh, with with water in the UK. They've clearly done so wonderfully with, with rail in the UK. I mean, if we hand it to private providers, and we've seen healthcare in America, what it's like to hand it to provide, private providers there. The alternative. Is disastrous is to hand it to the market that will run it for profit not for the well-being and and with the interests of our communities in mind and we'll see exactly what we've seen with the with water in the UK exactly what we've seen with rail in the UK and what is likely coming which is the disastrous private health care that Americans face
3: well no so I wouldn't characterize any of those systems as the ones that I would particularly embrace so for example in in rail the government still has a monopoly over franchises and rail infrastructure. All that private rail companies have done effectively for the past 10 or so years is just put the stickers on the outside of the train cars and designed the interior. And take the, the dividends. The government, and the government take the dividends. Processing. And as far as the American healthcare system is concerned, nobody wants that. But the American government spends twice
1: the amount of
3: money per capita on healthcare as our government does. Better examples where the private sector is very much involved are our friends in continental Europe using social health insurance systems? In the Netherlands, not one hospital is run by the state. They spend roughly the same amount of money per capita on healthcare as we do and have significantly better healthcare outcomes. That's the type of vision I think we should embrace to reform the NHS yeah un, them... un,
1: un, unfortunately I, I don't agree that nobody wants an American style system I, I I don't think that that's true I think there are a lot of people in our politics that quietly do want that system and that the destruction of the NHS its underfunding um, and it's uh, and I, th- I think we saw with Hillingdon Hospital this week in, in the news is a political strategy to say hey look elsewhere look how the health outcomes elsewhere is a political strategy to move us towards privatization but listen that's just my view harrison i i appreciate you coming on i agree with you that these kind of conversations between people who disagree are really really helpful um, and i think inform our listeners at least of the different viewpoints um and i'm a huge fan of aaron in the newsroom and i i, I once heard uh, two people talking about the economy say look our difference isn't on the facts; it's religious. We just have different views of interpreting those facts, and I think that's certainly the case in uh, in this regard. Um, thank you so much for coming.
3: I think that, there may be a sad element of truth in that quote.
1: <laughs> Harrison Griffiths, that's the communications officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Joining us next, we have Professor Melanie Sims, professor of work and employment at the University of Glasgow. She'll be joining us to talk more about strikes and the state of economy after this.
0: FUBAR Radio presents Harriet Rose Amber Marks here As I was saying the visuals on Love Be Right It was kind of like Lady in the Water Like you know yeah, that old yeah. painting That
3: was pretty crazy being
0: in that
1: pink plastic pool With like milk and like pink food dye and jello I think So
0: to us it looks really sexy And then you're just sat in there like what it is It was this? very cold <laughs> Very cold and very gloopy yeah. Did you pee in the pool? No I did not <laughs> I didn't Promise me I swear I
1: didn't because there was the guy who was doing He was holding the camera felt really bad. He was in the pool with me, so I
0: didn't want to pee in the pool. Oh, so that's the only reason you didn't pee in the pool because there was another guy there. I didn't want to do it. He's suddenly like, oh, did someone put some warm water in here? (laughs) Kind of a yellowy hue. Every Thursday, (laughs) Harriet Rose,
2: from 4pm, Fubar Radio.
1: Welcome back. This is Ali Malani. We've been talking about the strikes and the state of our economy uh, over the course uh, of this show. This is following uh, senior doctors across the UK voting in favour uh, of strike action for more pay. 86% of the British Medical Association members backed walkouts after repeated pay cuts. Um, I've just had a very lively and interesting discussion from um, by, with Harrison Griffiths, communications officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Now, I think it's worth noting, and perhaps I should have led with this, that the IEA has previously published uh, papers on privatization of things like the NHS. Um, and uh, not that that's Harrison's particular view, but I think it's important to know the context in which he comes from. Um, and we've been talking about the impact strikes have, whether they're necessary, um, and and the experience uh, of public sector workers is particularly um in the country as we approach further strike action this is following strike action in rail for example and in the healthcare sector we are now joined by professor melanie sims professor of work and employment at the university of glasgow uh professor sims thank you so much for joining us
0: thanks for having
1: me Uh, look i'm looking at your background i'm having flashbacks of uni so there's not going to be a pop quiz for me at the end of this you have you have to promise me and you're not going to Definitely not. (laughs) so um, i was just talking with with harrison about um the state of our economy as it pertains to public sector workers um, we have seen, according to the Resolution Foundation, 15 years of wage stagnation, £11,000 of lost wage gaps. Um, the TUC showed that workers suffered from the longest and harshest pay squeeze in modern history uh, and that, seven, that workers lost as men, much as £75 a month. Uh, sorry, workers are £75 a month worse off than they were in 2008 in real terms. These strikes are inevitable, are they not, in this in this state of economy?
0: Um Not inevitable. I think we've seen plenty of workplaces and plenty of sectors where managers have been able to negotiate uh, pay rises or where um, the cost of living, the impact of the cost of living increases has been mitigated by various other measures, but mainly pay rises um and so I don't think it's inevitable that high uh cost of living increases always leads to strikes in every sector not not all sectors have unions uh, for a start um and you can only go on strike if you you're represented by a union um but I think it is certainly a truism through industrial relations history that when we have periods of very high inflation very high rising prices it does Uh, present real challenges to workers in keeping their standard of living and if they do have unions that can represent them that does put pressure on making more demands and higher demands of employers and that can lead Mm -hmm. to to more strikes.
1: I I wonder if you could Melanie just for our listeners who may not be a member of a trade union uh, and may not know how this works can you give them a little brief insight? Uh, I always say it's um, it's like that old Denzel Washington quote. Explain it to me like I'm five years old. How do people go on strike?
0: Sure. So first of all, you have to be um, in a workplace that has a union. Um, you actually have to be a union member, although you, you can join between um, the, the, the strike being announced and, and then going on strike. Um, And in the UK, that's mainly public sector workers. There are some private sector workers in in, uh, sectors like retail and hospitality who are union members, but there aren't very many. And there aren't very many whose employers recognise that union uh, for the purposes of collectively bargaining over their pay and their terms and conditions, their holiday, their um, their, 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 um, sick leave, those kinds of things. So where you've got a union is highly concentrated in the, the public sector, teaching, med- medicine, hospitals, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of sectors. So that's
1: things like the National, uh, uh, National Educations Union,
0: the exactly. NUT. Yeah, and also a few sectors which used to be in the public sector, but which are now in the private sector. So the train companies are mainly public, uh, not public sector workers, but because they've got that history of having been in the public sector for a very long time, they've taken that history with them, and there are still lots of uh, union members there. So first of all, your employer has to recognise the the trade union, and there has to be normal industrial relations going on. So it's it's a normal part of human resource management that you try and negotiate pay, for example, collectively for everyone, rather than individual by individual, which if you work in retail, for example, might be more common. So you've got to have that going in the first place, and then you've got to have a dispute with your employer. So you can't just go on strike because you don't like the government's policy on national security or immigration or something like that. In some countries you can, um, but in the UK you can't. You have to have a dispute that's directly related to your employer, so usually about your pay or your holidays or your shift patterns or things like that. And then there's a very challenging process, which is you have to go through a vote. So all of the members of that trade union in that workplace who are affected by that issue have to have a a postal vote. Um, So the the question has to go out to everyone, which is usually framed something along the lines of, are you prepared to take strike action to support the pay claim or or, or something like that? And you have to vote.
1: And that has to be by post.
0: By post, indeed, so so the, the, the government has consistently refused to move that to, to an electronic um, voting. Mm-hmm. And then at least 50% of those members have to return their vote, and that's often very, very challenging for unions. Um, so it doesn't matter which way they vote, but the first threshold is have 50% of the people who got their ballot paper, got their voting slip, have they returned it. And if you haven't met that threshold, it doesn't matter how they vote. So the nurses, for example, voted overwhelmingly for strike action, but because they didn't hit that 50%, it doesn't count. And that's a very unusual um, sort of practice, not not, almost no countries have have rules that tight. And then if you do get 50% or more returning their their voting slips, uh, then obviously you have to get a majority of those saying they want to go on strike. Um, and then you give the notice to the employer saying we're going to go on strike. And that has to be uh, at least uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks. Um, and then you can withdraw your labour. And the crucial bit I think a lot of people don't understand is that you don't get paid if you go on strike. So my union is is taking strike action quite regularly across the university sector. So when I go on strike action, I don't get paid for that time um, and similarly, the doctors, if they mm-hmm. go on strike, won't get paid for that time.
1: I, I just want to talk quickly about this. Um, I want people to understand how much the uh, the laws have been tightened specifically. Now, you spoke about uh, the fact that you need to vote by post. Uh, and that's obviously by design, because you need a 50% threshold. It becomes much harder to get that threshold just by the nature of sending things by post. Um, and and the impact that that's having. So. With nurses, for example, uh, they had 122,000 ballots received by the Royal College of Nurses. 84% of those people voted in favor of striking, but now they're legally unable to take strike action because they needed 140,000 threshold, uh, which would hit the 50%. So this is, can you tell us, this is a recent legislation, fairly recent legislation passed by the Conservatives, and the, the view from myself and others will be that they're purposely making it difficult for people to strike
0: there's in my view there's some truth in that um so the the rules about voting by post those were introduced in the 1980s and what those were intended to
1: do they belong in the 1980s Yeah,
0: a (laughs) long time ago so they um that was intended to stop big meetings where people just put their hands in the air to to say whether or not they were going on strike and there was a feeling that that could be too easily manipulated by your friends who were standing around you um, and it really only worked in big workplaces where you could get everyone into the car park at a particular <laughs> moment. So it wasn't a terrible idea yeah. at the time.
1: I spent I, uh, I, Melanie. I spent a lot of times at the NUS where where we did votes like that, and I can tell exactly. you for sure that happened. Yeah. yeah.
0: So and it can. I mean, you know, it's not a terrible idea to take away that that kind of pressure. Um, and But then what happened more recently was this 50% rule. And that 50% rule is higher than almost any other election. Certainly, if you think about the, uh, the, the, the kinds of turnouts that many MPs are elected on, it's certainly not anywhere near 50%. And certainly in, in by-elections, which happen out, out of cycle with a, mm-hmm. a general election, for example, or local elections, there are plenty of elected officers all around the country who oh, in gosh, no yeah. way achieve that 50% I so know, it's I, really tough
1: MPs M- and MPs in safe seats have been selected as candidates which which essentially guarantees them becoming a member of parliament in ultra Tory or labor safe seats that have been um selected by less than 100 people
3: yeah
1: um, indeed. who then become an mp uh, that's really interesting so i i now want to move on to sort of a broader scale rather than how they strike what the future might look like for the for trade unions because at the very least in the short term while we have a conservative government it seems like strike action is compounding and it's going it's not just it's just not confined to one sector so traditionally railway rail workers have have been you know on the front line of of striking and in my view good on them and they've that you've seen the result of, of that in their working conditions and pay packets uh, but now we've got teachers, we've got nurses. I think this consultants, the fact that consultants are now striking is significant. Yep. What, what are we looking at in terms of the future of the trade union movement in the UK? What impact it, it could have um, politically?
0: So I think there's two slightly different answers. One in the public sector, where I think it's really it's made those unions really organise well, because they know that they have to hit this 50% ballot, so they have to know exactly who... Uh, who that who's getting their voting slips they have to do a lot of campaign work to try and get those voting slips sent back and all of that kind of thing and what that does is it really makes you talk to the workers that you're representing you, you can't persuade them to send you know go toward the effort of filling in their, their paper slip and sending it back if you if they're not committed to that in some way so it's opened up lots of conversations with people who were members maybe the the stalwarts who've been there for 20 years or so but it's also opened lots of conversations with people who maybe were a bit more sceptical or hadn't got it round to it and those kinds of things. Yeah. So that's been quite positive in terms of membership. There there have been some real membership increases in some of those unions.
1: Yeah. I just uh, I want to ask you one last question because we're running out of time. Um, what, what does that look like in terms of are more people joining unions? Because I know... Um, Previous to this cycle, there was a bit of dip in union membership. Is that now going up? Are more people joining unions?
0: Well, it'll take a while before we see the data, because the data is always slow to come in. Uh, But anecdotally, definitely, that's what some of those unions are saying. But, of course, there's the big bit of the private sector where there isn't uh, unions. So there isn't a union for people to join often. And there, I think it's done a lot of um, raising of awareness of what unions are, I've researched trade unions for 25 years, and I've spent a lot of taxi rides and times at parties trying to explain <laughs> to people what I do. I don't have to do that anymore. People understand. Yeah. What I do. Well, it's
1: just so public now, given exactly. given the scale of and the strikes. I
0: think for unions, that can only really be a, a positive thing in the longer term. Mm.
1: That was Professor Melanie Sims. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow. Like she said, like she said, has been studying and researching um, the trade union movement for over. 20 years we are now going onto the streets of Islington this is one of my favorite segments of our show to find out what people really think outside of universities and Westminster and even this studio our wonderful producers put on their best sneakers and go out into the streets of Islington um to find out what people really think about these issues and this week our question was Keir Starmer criticised Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for being out of touch with the struggles of ordinary people who do you think is the most out of touch politician?
0: I think it would be easier to ask the question who do I think is in date? Definitely Rishi Sunak I think anyone that's got millions of pounds isn't going to be in touch with the general public that don't have millions of pounds. Pretty Patel. I just think it's so evident in the way that she speaks um, that she's just completely out of touch. People like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Duncan Smith, Eddie Mordant, Boris himself. These guys are all just. On a different planet altogether.
3: Dominic Raab, when he said that in terms of the food bank issue, the typical user
0: of food bank is not someone that is languishing in poverty. Rishi Sunak, I mean, is a millionaire. How does he know the problems that this country has? Jeremy Hunt, a joke, lives in his own world. Suela. And what about Boris? I mean, what a joke.
1: Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer.
0: I think Rishi Sunak.
1: I think none of the politicians have a clue about what working people have to do.
0: Where shall I start? Pretty Patel, Suella Braverman, Boris Johnson, uh, Rishi Sunak and that twat Reese
1: Smug. (laughs) That twat Reese Smug. I think it, what you're hearing there is pretty much the entire political establishment, um, which I- isn't wrong. This week, um, I I went on Talk TV to talk about uh, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, telling the country to hold their nerve. And I remember, you know, one of the points that I made was, how can someone who is worth north of 700 million pounds tell everyone else to hold their nerve while the economy pummels us into the ground? And... It will become probably, by this point, a nauseatingly repeated point on this show that it's not just an unwillingness by these people like you've heard from uh, the people on the street, Rishi Sunak and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Priti Patel, Suela Braverman, and let's not forget, I thought I was going to go a whole show without mentioning him, Alexander Defefel Boris Johnson, who are out of touch. They're unwilling to meet these issues because when they say they to hold our nerve as it pertains to inflation, they don't know what it's like. They don't have to go into the supermarket and look down at their trolley and say i can no longer afford this they don't have to go into the petrol pump and watch how much petrol they're putting into their cars uh, because they can't afford to pay the bills they don't need to decide whether they're going to pay their energy bills or put food on the plates for their children these are people hopelessly out of touch and who are patronizingly telling the rest of the country to hold our nerve all the while profits within corporations are skyrocketing and the rich get ve- the richest in our society get richer and richer and the politicians are more and more out of touch. And that is what these rounds of strikes are about. They're trade unions and organized people coming together to make sure that they get better work conditions and they meet the challenges of real-term pay cuts. That brings us to the end of our show. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much to all of our guests, including Councillor Hamza Tuazel, former Lord Mayor of Westminster, Harrison Griffiths from the Institute of Economic Affairs, and Professor Melanie Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at University of Glasgow. You can follow us on Instagram at Politics uncensored uh, on twitter we are politics fubar i am at ali milani uk thank you so much for joining us i will see you all next week salams